If you have your Bibles, turn to a very familiar passage, John chapter 3, and the story about Nicodemus and how we must be born again. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling class. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. How can a man be born when he's old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but you still, you people, do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake or the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever would believe in him shall have, shall not perish but have eternal life. The word of God to God's people. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes, unstop our ears, work in our hearts, renew our minds, that we too might be born again and might give evidence of it in our lives. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. George Whitfield was probably the one person, humanly speaking, that was responsible for the Great Awakening in the 1700s, 1730. He was very influential in his preaching, not only in England, but in America as well. Uh, he uh, crossed the Atlantic uh, 13 times to preach the gospel. And basically, that's the only time he got any rest. He preached about a thousand sermons a year. Sometimes he would preach six or eight times a day. Sometimes he would preach to six, eight, up to 20,000 people. Can you imagine how tiring that would be on a voice? He rarely took a day off. The only time he took off to study was when he was going across the ocean on the ocean ship. He could find several weeks to study, pray, and plan. But out of all of those thousands of sermons, he preached one sermon over a thousand times, and some people think he preached it three thousand times. And the sermon was John 3, you must be born again. One lady was intrigued by how many times he preached it, and she said, why do you preach so many times you must be born again? And he said, lady, because you must. You must be born again. This morning, let's look at this passage under these three headings. 
the necessity of the new birth, the mystery of the new birth, and the evidence of the new birth. Let's look at the necessity of the new birth. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. Now he's talking to Nicodemus, uh, one of the most well-respected leaders of the whole community. And when people think about born again, they have this idea that maybe the down and out, the drug addicts, the alcoholics, the people that have had bad life, they need to turn over a new life, change their life. They need to be born again. But Nicodemus is an example of even, quote, good people need to be born again. Now, we know that there's no one good except God, but we can still use the phrase, he's a good man or a good person. And we could take from this passage that Jesus is basically saying even the good people have to be born again. Uh, a Pharisee. Now, in our understanding, that's a bad guy. A legalistic, judgmental, uh, narrow-minded, conservative, you know, to the extreme. But in their day, he was like a theological doctor, a seminary professor. He was like a political and religious leader. He was like a, an elder who rose to the, the office of being a senator. That's how important a Pharisee was. He had a great education. He was educated in, in the Greek uh, philosophy, obviously. He took his name from the Greek. He used Nicodemus, which was a Greek name and not a, a Jewish name. He was a person who was the teacher. The NIV says a teacher. The word should say he was the teacher among the Pharisees. He was the man. He was the R.C. Sproul. He was the D. James Kennedy. He was the, whoever you want to say. He was the man. And Jesus was telling him, you have to be born again. Born again. So... Jesus is telling a guy, you must be born again, that had it not on his mind. He came at night. He didn't have a question. He, he asked no question, not even one. He had a great opinion of Jesus. He knew Jesus was from God. He was uniquely from God. He knew Jesus was a teacher. He taught with authority. He knew Jesus had performed miracles and signs and nobody could do them and probably if he had a question, his question would be, who in the world are you? Are you indeed the Messiah? Came at night because that's not something a Pharisee would probably ask a person that didn't have a degree from any uh, seminary or anything. And with that praise and adoration and that acclamation, Jesus says, you have to be born again. You have to be born again. The word again means the second time. Just like you are physically born, you have to be spiritually born. The word again, though, could probably be better translated from above. Uh, first John, I mean, John 1, 12 said born of God. And so being born again is being born of God, making, being made a new creature in Christ. Uh, a person who is Born again, is, uh, his, his loves are redirected. His affections are changed. His mind is renewed. His will is renewed. His, his understanding, his eyes are opened. 
And people have been born again and given their testimony throughout the years. Luther, as you know, he did everything. He said if you could be saved by monkery, uh, the things that monks do, that was his word, not mine. If you could be saved by monkery, uh, he was saved, but he wasn't saved. And then he began to study Luther's uh, introduction to the book of Galatians, and all of a sudden he was born again. And it was like he had a new life. And Wesley, although Wesley had been part of the Methodists, and they had this, uh, they were methodical in their approach to righteousness and holiness and missions and giving and stuff. And Wesley was a missionary and a pastor and, and everything and didn't know the Lord. And one night, about a quarter to nine, his heart was strangely warmed. He was born again. His affections were changed. His eyes were opened. And see, everybody has to be born again. If you're going to see the kingdom of God, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, which would be the Jewish synonymous phrase for heaven, eternal life, if you're going to know that, see that, you have to be born again. And what you're thinking of right now is you're probably thinking, do I have that experience? And I'm not talking about an experience. I'm talking about a rearranging of your values, a renewing of your mind, a changing of your affections. It might be instantaneously, and it might be gradually. But God has to change our hearts and open our eyes and unstop our ears if we're going to see the kingdom of God. C. Everett Koop was the Surgeon General, I think, under Reagan, maybe not. I forget. I forgot to look up who he was under. But when he got to be somebody in the area, he thought he needed to go to church, and so he started going to uh, James Montgomery Boyce's church in Philadelphia, 10th Presbyterian. I've had a chance to worship there, and I worshiped there one time during General Assembly. C. Everett Cook found his place in the balcony, kind of slipped in and slipped out, and he said the first time he heard James Montgomery Boyce preach, he said, people believe this? Can you imagine? You know, people believe this? Liberals or people who aren't Christians come to our church, and they probably say, do you all believe what he's saying? Jesus is the only way? C. Everett Cook said over the year over the weeks and months and maybe even a year he was gradually converted and he came to believe what was preached from that pulpit he was born again gradually but he was changed the second thing you need to know is that it is mysterious it is very mysterious this new birth it was mysterious to nicodemus Nicodemus was a person who should have known this according to what Jesus said. You are a teacher and you don't understand these these simple things. And so Nicodemus was, he came in the dark and he was literally in the dark. John is using images here, born again and wind and darkness and nighttime to kind of describe the picture of somebody without the Lord in their life. And Nicodemus said twice, how can this be? How can you be born again? How can a man enter his mother's womb? He was thinking literally, physically. He was thinking, a grown man cannot do that. You, you can't do that. 
It wasn't that he was being sarcastic or cynical or, or making fun of Jesus. He couldn't comprehend what he's saying. Born again? So Jesus gives him, like a good preacher does, an illustration. An illustration of the wind. He says, you don't know where the wind comes or goes, do you? You don't know where it's been or where it's going, but you know the wind when it comes there because the wind is mysterious. It's sovereign. Nobody can predict the wind. Uh, go to the Weather Channel today. There is a hurricane going to Central America. And that's about as specific as they can be. They can look at all of Central America and say, Y'all guys, watch out. You know, from South America to North America. And we know that when we're going on vacation, you're watching the weather map, and they tell you there's going to be a tornado, and it might be as far as Tampa to, to Galveston. Y'all watch that. They don't know until it gets closer, because wind is mysterious. It can turn and move, and different things can change it. Remember John Blanchard saying that he was taking a tour or being driven somewhere, and this guy said, during the Welch revival, the Holy Spirit took a left here. Blanchard said, uh, can you say that again? I thought I heard you say the Holy Spirit took a left here. And he said, yeah, the Holy Spirit took a left here. That when the, Holy, the revival broke out, everything on this side experienced revival, but on this side there, didn't, there wasn't. Mysterious. I know not how God's Spirit moves, the hymn says, convincing men of sin. I know not how it moves. Don't know how it goes. But what he says is that flesh gives birth to flesh, and the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, and the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. And you say, what is Jesus trying to say? There's no way, humanly speaking, that a person in their physical, fleshly existence can accomplish anything spiritual. You know, you, you can try as much as you want, but dogs are going to have puppies. You're not going to go out there one day and find that your dog had a kitten or a cow. And it's about that ridiculous. You cannot make yourself be spiritual. You cannot make yourself be born again. You cannot take ten steps and it happens. The magic happens. You can't fast your way in or pray your way in. That The Holy Spirit has to blow itself in your life. Spirit gives birth to spirit. It's impossible to do it any other way. But he says something a little bit different here than you would think. He says you have to be born of the water and the Spirit. Now, I did a lot of studying on this, and I was very encouraged to hear that R.C. Sproul said he was not certain that his interpretation was right. Because there are four or five other interpretations of what it means that you must be born of the water and of the Spirit. Uh, Boyce lists those five, and one of them is it means a physical birth. 
You must be born physically and spiritually, water and spirit. The first thing that, the first sign that your lady's going into labor, well, maybe not the first, but we see the water breaks. And the water that surrounds the baby is the first thing that lets you know that life is coming out. That has to be born of water. And just like you're having to be born of water physically by your mother, you have to be born of the Spirit by your Heavenly Father. I like that uh, explanation. The other explanation is some people think it means baptism. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. That baptism is a becomes not only a sign, but becomes a sacrament that, that, that effectively brings about what it signifies. That the water actually saves, it converts people. And that's the reason some churches, and when children are dying in infancy, will rush to the hospital to baptize the baby to make sure it's been regenerated by that water. You know Jesus didn't teach that. Others think it means to be cleansed, and taking the cue from Clint's class this morning, uh, Ezekiel 37, where this passage comes from, the water and the Spirit. And what uh, Jesus is meaning, if you take this, trans, uh, this interpretation, is that you have to not only be powerfully uh, indwelt by the Spirit, but you have to be purified, cleansed by the Spirit. Your sins have to be washed away. Some people believe that the words are synonymous, that the Spirit and the water are synonymous, that you could translate, you have to be born by the, by the water, even the Spirit. But Boyce takes an interesting take, and he says its understanding is you have to be born by the Word and the Spirit. And you go, well... Is there any evidence of that? There's a lot of evidence of that. It says in 1 Peter 1, 8, 1, 23, it says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living, enduring Word of God. Uh, Ephesians five twenty six talks about washing clean with the water of the Word. James one eighteen talks about being born by the water of the Word. There are several places. And what is good about that interpretation is that the word always plays a spirit, plays a part in being born again. That when you look at anybody's testimony, it's almost like there's one place in there where this spirit just made the word come to life. There was a man by the name of Bishop, Bishop, uh, if I could read my Bishop Pike, you ought to see what my Pike looked like. Anyway, he was an Episcopal bishop. He was a lawyer, but he had this vision for having a, a worldwide church. And he was working with the UPC, United Presbyterian Church, stated clerk. And they wanted all these denominations to unite together. In order to do that, if you take all the mainline denominations, what you have to do is throw away some of the main doctrines of the Bible. And so he not only had this vision, he was charged with heresy, even by the Episcopal Church we're talking about in the 50s. And uh, this man got disillusioned, became an alcoholic, divorced his wife, his son committed suicide, 
And he went to a psychic and contacted his son from the dead, he said. So he had another son that lived and grew up in that life of uh, conflict and heresy and all kind of confusion. And it wasn't, it wasn't surprising that when he went to college, he got on drugs, first marijuana, then he got on heroin and psychedelic drugs. And he was at Berkeley in the 1970s. And this hippie who had been converted, you remember the Jesus movement? I was converted during the Jesus movement in the 70s. Uh, this hippie was giving a talk on the steps of some building at Berkeley. Now, that's not the citadel of conservative thought. Uh, so he was uh, giving this talk, and this son of this Bishop Pike heard it. And he was on marijuana and heroin and psychedelic type drugs. And he went home and started reading the Bible. And he was converted. He was converted. Because it's mysterious. The Word has an amazing ability to create life in us. And as we talk about communicant class, and I I tell them all, read the Word, read the Bible, read the Bible. The last thing is, if you're born again, there's evidence. Uh, you don't know where the wind came from, you don't know where it's going, but there's evidence. You know, the other night after that storm and after the, you know, the hail as big as golf balls, mine, some of mine were bigger than that. I thought the end of the world was coming, but anyway, it sounded like bombs hitting on the top of your house. And, but you saw evidence the next day you walked out and the ground had holes in it and the limbs had uh, been blown off some of the trees and little twigs were everywhere. You saw the evidence. And if you're born again, there's evidence. There's evidence. There's evidence of life. You have a spiritual pulse. You have spiritual eyes. You have spiritual ears. You have a spiritual heart. I remember serving on a committee with Ford Williams. And Ford Williams, it was a credentials committee, I believe. And one of the first things you do in that committee is you ask people their testimony. And afterwards, Ford would always ask a question like this. What is the one evidence that points to the fact you're truly converted? He could have said, what's the one thing that you know and point to that gives evidence that you are born again? What has God blown into your life? You'd get great answers, but Ford would always say, you know, the thing that convinces me is that uh, I, I hate what I used to love and I love what I used to hate. I love the things of God and I hate my sin. What's the evidence you've been born again? What's been rearranged in your life? I'm not looking for a date, a time, an experience. I'm looking for evidence. Look, helping you look for evidence. Do you have evidence of uh, the fruit of the Spirit being cultivated in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience. That's that vacation Bible school song that they sing. I can't sing it. I can't say the fruit of the Spirit that fast. Uh, but are they being developed in your life? You can't have the Holy Spirit and be always negative, critical, cynical, judgmental. 
You can't have it and not have any patience or your life knows no joy or you have no self-control. I'm not saying you have those perfectly, but they're being worked out in your life and you're working them out in your life. You just don't say that's, you know, that's not me. Well, it ought to be you. But the one evidence that John is looking for in John 3 is faith. Do you have a faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who came to give Himself for sinners, who died on the cross that we might live forever, who took our hell that we might go to heaven? Do you believe in that Jesus? That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit. True faith is a work of the Holy Spirit in the human heart. Do you have that faith? Do you cling to Him alone for your salvation? Why did Whitfield preach so much on you must be born again? Because you must. But because it had been such a vital part of his experience, when he was a teenager, he was irreligious and he had sin-loving friends. They found themselves doing all sorts of things which he doesn't mention. But he knew in his heart there was this chasm between him and God, a holy God. And he resolved to change. And here's what he did. I, I worked very hard to change, much harder than most people ordinarily would change, try to change himself. He denied himself every luxury. He wore dirty clothes. He ate only foods he didn't like. He fasted twice a week. He gave his money to the poor. He spent whole nights in prayer, prostrate on the gold, on the cold stones or wet grass. But it didn't change him. He knew it didn't change him. And then Charles Wesley gave him a book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man by Henry Sugel, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And basically what Sugel was saying is there's a difference in religion and a relationship with God. And you have to have that relationship with God that your religion grows out of. And he describes his experience of how that truth came in and the penny dropped, as they say, in his life. And he became a new creature. And the first act of it in his ecstasy, it said, was to write his relatives. I have found, he told them, there is such thing as a new birth. And he spent the rest of his life preaching Thousands of times you must be born again. You must. Now, don't compare your story to anybody else's. When people join the church, you some of you experience this when you join the church. I always ask the elders, several of them, to give their testimony. And I do that because they're so drastically different. Especially, you know, when uh, we look at Clint doesn't know a day that he didn't know the Lord. The Lord gradually won his heart, and he loves the Lord. David could tell you it happened probably at, at Delta State. Gene Godwin could tell you that he started playing tennis with Gene, with uh, Jimmy Heidel and Wilson and some of them and gradually came into the kingdom. It, it's not a... Don't depend on experience. Evidence that the Holy Spirit has arranged, rearranged your loves and your affections. Let's pray. We know not how the Spirit moves convincing men of sin.
We know not how, but we know you do. And we love only because you love us. And we do hate our sin. We do despise the fact that we're not more like Christ by this time. We wish we knew more. We wish we were better. We wish we were more forgiving. We wish we were more generous. We wish we were more in love with your word. But we take even those desires, those frustrated desires, as evidence that you are working in our lives. So, Father, I would pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd take this passage and you would work great assurance in the hearts of people or work great conversions in the lives of people. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.